Good evening. The head of the CDC says we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to COVID-19. Nancy Pelosi uh, confronts the Republican leader in the House and he says she will go ahead with her commission looking into the January 6th uprisings at the United States Capitol by supporters of former President Trump. We speak with a New York State Assembly person about his goal to change the names on every street in New York that commemorates a slaveholder in New York City, one of the largest slaveholding cities in American history. And also a group of homeless activists Houseless activists are planning to spend the night in front of Gracie Mansion. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, July 22nd, 2021. Tokyo hit another six-month high in COVID-19 cases today, one day before the Olympics begin, as worries grow of a worsening of infections during the Games. Thursday's 1,979 new cases are the highest since 2044 new cases were recorded on January 15th. Prime Minister Yoshide Suga, who is determined to hold the Olympics, placed Tokyo under a state of emergency on July 12th, but daily cases have sharply increased since then. Japan has reported about 853,000 cases and 15,100 deaths since the pandemic began, most of them this year. Still, the number of cases and deaths as a share of the population are much lower than in many other countries. The Olympics, delayed for a year by the pandemic, begin tomorrow. Spectators are banned from all venues in the Tokyo area, with limited audiences allowed at a few outlying sites. Reportedly, the variant that we're talking about here that's spreading around the world is highly contagious, largely because people infected with the Delta strain, as they call it, can carry up to 1,000 times more virus in their nasal passages than those infected with the original strain. The director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Yesterday, CDC reported 46,318 new cases of COVID-19. Our seven-day average is at about 37,300. 700 cases per day. And this represents an increase of 53% from the prior seven-day average. The seven-day average of hospital admissions is about 3,500 per day, an increase of about 32% from the previous seven-day period. And the seven-day average of daily deaths has also increased to 237 per day, an increase of about 19% from the previous seven-day period. Today, I want to speak about our need to come together against a common enemy, SARS-CoV-2 and the Delta variant. The Delta variant is spreading with incredible efficiency and now represents more than 83% of the virus circulating in the United States. Compared to the virus we had circulating initially in the United States at the start of the pandemic, the Delta variant is more aggressive and much more transmissible than previously circulating strains. It is one of the most infectious respiratory viruses we know of and that I have seen in my 20-year career. We recognize that some of you are still thinking about whether you will get vaccinated. Maybe you're seeing your local officials stepping forward publicly to get vaccinated, or maybe you're watching on local news that your community hospitals are getting full, or scarier still, maybe COVID-19 sickness has tragically hit you or your community closer to home. If you are still on the fence, if you still have questions about the vaccines, we welcome them. My request to you is this, ask your questions, talk to your healthcare provider, 
talk to your pharmacist. Talk to your friends and neighbors who have gotten vaccinated and get your questions answered so that you feel comfortable and informed in making this critical decision. But Dr. Winsky adds for the more than 50 percent of Americans vaccinated, the vaccines are working as expected. To those of you who have already gotten vaccinated, I know you're probably worried about two things, whether you will still get COVID despite being vaccinated and which activities are safe. Let's start with the first concern. Being fully vaccinated gives you a high degree of protection against infection and an even higher degree of protection against severe illness, hospitalization and death. That is what these vaccines were designed for and what the clinical trials studied and the vaccines generally do their job quite well. These vaccines are some of the most effective that we have in modern medicine. And the good news is that current scientific evidence shows that our current vaccines are working as they did in clinical trials, even against the Delta variant. Importantly, our data show that infections are much less common in vaccinated people compared to unvaccinated, and most illness in vaccinated individuals is asymptomatic or mild. The most important public health step is to increase the vaccination coverage in all communities in the U.S. and globally. Walensky adds that reports COVID is over were far from accurate together are not out of the woods yet. We are yet at another pivotal moment in this pandemic, with cases rising again and some hospitals reaching their capacity in some areas. We need to come together as one nation, unified in our resolve to protect the health of ourselves, our children, our community, our country, and our future with the tools we have available. And that's Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She's director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And most of what she was talking about referred to the situation in the United States. And as we've covered on this news and in other locations on WBAI, of course, this uh, COVID pandemic is hitting the world very hard. And many countries, Brazil, India and others have taken very, very large hits as well and are facing uh, shortages of vaccines and other necessities in order to fight it as effectively as these richer countries like the United States. The Delta variant has spread quickly to the U.S., accounting for more than 83 percent of sequenced cases in the country right now, up from 50 percent the week of July 3rd. The seven-day average of new cases is up about 53 percent from last week, currently at 37,674 new cases per day. Hospitalizations are up 32 percent from last week at about 3,500 per day, and deaths have also increased 19 percent in the same time frame to about 240 per day. The virus is ripping through U.S. counties with low vaccination rates, while counties with high vaccination rates are seeing lower rates of new cases. And in Washington, unfazed by Republican threats of a boycott, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi declared today that a congressional committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection will take on its deadly serious work, whether Republicans participate or not. The Republicans' House leader, Kevin McCarthy, called the committee a sham process and suggested that GOP lawmakers who take part could face consequences. McCarthy said Pelosi's rejection of two of the Republicans he had attempted to appoint was an egregious abuse of power. The speaker spoke earlier today. Legislation allows. I did not accept two of the five people were appointed. Uh, they have made statements and taken actions uh, that I think would impact the integrity 
of the commission, of the committee, the work of the committee. This is deadly serious. This is about our Constitution. It's about our country. It's about assault on the Capitol that is being mischaracterized for some reason at the expense, at the expense of finding the truth for the American people. I'm very pleased the response that we have received across the country and from my caucus uh, on this subject. And we will, I'm very pleased with the leadership of Benny Thompson, our chairman, the bipartisan nature of our committee with Liz Cheney, the other members on the committee uh, who have experience and patriotism as their calling cards. So we will proceed. And as I said, they're in the process of the committee is in the process of hiring staff uh, to that end. It's my responsibility as Speaker of the House to make sure we get to the truth on this, and we will not let their antics stand in the way of that. On another subject, again, uh, we are working very hard. And that is uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The escalating tension between the two parties before the investigation has even started is emblematic of the raw partisan anger that's only worsened on Capitol Hill since the former president, Donald Trump supporters, laid siege to the Capitol and interrupted the certification of President Joe Biden's victory. Most Republicans still loyal to Trump and many downplaying the severity of the violent attack. There's little bipartisan unity to be found. It's unclear for now whether Pelosi will try to appoint more members to the select panel as she has the authority to do under committee rules. Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney has already been appointed by Pelosi to sit on the committee along with seven Democrats, ensuring they have a quorum to proceed, whether other Republicans participate or not. And with forest fires raging in the United States and Russia and floods devastating parts of Western Europe, environment and energy ministers from the group of 20 industrialized countries gathered today for two days of talks ahead of November's crucial climate change conference. Host Italy is hoping that Naples talks will spur ambitious goals to be adopted at the COP26 conference in Glasgow, Scotland, which organizers have said represents the world's last best chance to get runaway climate control, climate change under control. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry was attending the Naples summit and had an early meeting with with the Italian environment minister. The meetings are taking place as forest fires rip through huge swaths of parched land in the western U.S. and Siberia, and as Germany and Belgium continue the cleanup effort after torrents of floods ripped through the several small towns, killing more than 200 people. Scientists say that while it's hard to attribute specific storms to climate change, extreme weather of the kind that caused the flash floods will become more severe and frequent in a warming world. Desert-like heat waves earlier this summer in the northwestern United States and in Canadian areas known for cold, damp temperatures with record-searing temperatures of well over 100 degrees have raised fears. Adam Sobel is a climatologist at Columbia University. He says human-generated greenhouse gases are a major part of the problem driving extreme weather from heat waves to sea level rise, including the threats of rising waters to neighborhoods in New York City. Things a little bit warmer, but the other aspects of the weather stay the same, then every heat wave will be a bit hotter and the probability of crossing any extreme temperature threshold will increase. Now, in fact, it may be in some places that not just the average, but the distribution of temperature, the fluctuation may also change. If you just imagine that the same weather systems are coming and going, but that everything's a little bit warmer than it was, then you're going to have worse heat waves.
It seems to be happening all over the world globally. Yeah, it is to varying degrees. Here in New York, where we are, the heat generally comes with humidity, and both are increasing with warming. So that, and then you have in the Pacific Northwest heat wave that we had recently, which is really truly extreme and astonishing. That was a, a drier heat, which poses a slightly different kinds of risk. There are even places in the world which are now at increased risk for reaching thresholds of temperature and humidity. Combined temperature and humidity, we measure the combination by a thing called the wet bulb temperature. And when the wet bulb temperature is greater than more or less the human body temperature, which means it's very hot and very humid at the same time past a certain point, then the, the human body can't cool itself and it can kill people. Could that be that parts of the world uninhabitable? If it starts happening regularly, yes, with uninhabitable, at least for people outdoors without air conditioning. And the places that are most at risk that are in some parts of South Asia and the Persian Gulf, which are right now have the, the worst extremes of temperature and humidity. In the short term, any place uninhabitable, but it, we're definitely facing a future where some places are going to be very, very challenging to live in. So New York faced Sandy. You worked on Sandy and know a lot about it. What is New York facing? And right now there's a debate over how to handle that. How is New York going to handle sea level rise? In a place like New York, expensive adaptation measures are feasible. There's some amount of post-Sandy flood defenses being built, and there's more being talked about. We can debate the merits of those in cities that are particularly um, wealthy and that have a lot of people. It may be feasible to do that, but there's a lot of other places where eventually the only feasible response to continued sea level rise is going to be retreat, and that can either be managed, so-called managed retreat, or it can be unmanaged, which would be and either way is not good. Which way is but New York going? It could be particularly scary. New York is definitely at substantial climate risk. It's not the worst place in the world because not only from sea level rise, heat and humidity are significant issues here too. This has become a warm and humid climate and we have serious heat waves in the summer and we could have much worse ones in future. Heavy rain events like we saw just even a couple of weeks ago are going to get heavier and that can cause all kinds of flooding problems. But for sea level rise, it's a problem. New York has a bunch of low-lying neighborhoods and they're basically the ones that flooded in Sandy. Those neighborhoods, to some extent, they can be defended with protection measures like seawalls if we want to do that. Some of them maybe will end up retreating from. Some of them maybe natural defenses like restoring wetlands could help to some degree. But a lot of the city is up from the sea that in the near future, at least, the city as a whole is not necessarily at an existential risk. What's the most at-risk neighborhood, in your opinion, in New York? If you just look at the map of where flooded during Sandy, so good chunks of Staten Island, South Brooklyn and Queens, neighborhoods like Red Hook that are very low-lying, the Lower East Side, neighborhoods that flooded there, East Harlem, there was some bad flooding. All the neighborhoods that used to be historically either wetlands or reclaimed land, like landfill, those are the neighborhoods that are the lowest lying and that naturally would be flood prone and that now we've built on. Venice has tried all these things and they still have worse and worse flooding. If you want to, you can build seawalls around things. That's expensive and it blocks off people's access to the sea and it has plenty of other problems. But it's in principle doable, although not everywhere. On a large scale, this is not our best move to reduce greenhouse gas emissions because we can't protect all the exposed coastline in the United States or in the world. 
Adam Sobel is a climatologist at Columbia University. While many countries have pledged to eliminate net carbon emissions by 2050, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says emissions will be cut by at least 40 percent by the end of the decade to keep temperatures in check. And in more national news, the Justice Department is launching gun trafficking strike forces in five cities in the United States as part of an effort to reduce spiking violent crime by addressing illegal trafficking and prosecuting offenses that help put handguns in the hands of criminals. Attorney General Merrick Garland is launching his strike force today in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. The effort will include increased enforcement in so-called supply areas, cities and states where it's normally easier to obtain firearms, firearms that are later trafficked into cities with more restrictive gun laws. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York took a tentative step closer toward reparations for slavery yesterday. The state assembly passed a bill sponsored by Assemblyman Charles Barron that would set up a commission to study slavery and its impact on black New Yorkers. I'm sorry, that was last month. Assembly Bill A-2619A would have the commission determine the amount of reparations and who should get them. Five political appointees would be on the commission along with six people from black pro-reparations groups if the bill in New York were signed into law. WBAI spoke with Assemblymember Barron earlier today. The historic value of this bill is that it is the only bill in the nation that gives the community a majority of the members of the commission. All other bills have the state or the feds, the president, and the Congress, or the state assembly, and the governors having the majority members of the commission. That's number one. Number two, this commission is not about an apology or a study to see if we should receive uh, reparations. It is a commission on remedies to say the amount, the form, and who's eligible to receive it. Uh, People have been, uh, crime has been committed and people have been injured and compensation is long overdue. So we made history in that the state assembly uh, passed my bill and we had about 40, 50 sponsors uh, in the assembly by a vote of 103 to 45. And that has never happened in this state. And then now we have the same as bill that's sponsored by Jabari Frisport in the Senate. And we're calling on Andrea Stewart-Cousins, the majority leader of the Senate, to call a special session, have this bill passed, so that the commission can be put in place and the work can begin. And we're doing this because New York State was a big-time slaveholding state. New York City was the second-largest slaveholding city in the country, second only to Charleston, South Carolina. New York had its economy, was built on slave labor, and its capitalist economy, the foundation, the economic foundation of The capitalist economy here in New York State and New York City was built on the back, blood, sweat, and tears, stealing the land from the indigenous people and stealing us to build the economic foundation for the capitalist state of New York. If we change all these names, if we get rid of it and take all these slave owners out, won't we be undermining the unifying factor of all Americans? You don't undermine people by telling the truth about the history of America and then make the corrections. It's not about undermining anything. It's the truth. We had enslavement. 
Uh, people were murdered. People were raped. People were forced into work to build this country by removing these slaveholders' names from streets. It's the right thing to do, and that's the least we can do. A guy like Columbus, who was a rapist, a racist, we have Columbus Day. That's an insult. Every poor neighborhood, mostly African-American, not always, you see a Martin Luther King Boulevard or street or road. And you even occasionally see a Malcolm X Boulevard and other famous people. And yet it runs right through the middle of the, in that whole town. Changing these names, we're just letting people off the hook, too. I think we do it all. There's no either or. The most important thing is to get reparations paid. The most important thing is for taxpaying black citizens getting what they're supposed to get out of budgets, like a $212 billion budget in New York State, $98.7 billion budget in New York City. And what you give us is a holiday for Juneteenth. Thank you. But that didn't cost you nothing. Pay us our reparation. So we're not going to let them get away with these symbolic changes, even if they do change the streets. The real deal is that got to change this system, this capitalist system that's exploiting people and the racist ideology that permeates every institution and in the minds of millions of New Yorkers. That's what has to change. We have to talk about revolution, radical, systemic change. And while we're in the business of doing that, change the damn street name. This is absurd. The state of Texas legislature, their assembly just passed a law saying that it's illegal for a teacher to mention the Ku Klux Klan in a derogatory light <laughs> or as human incredible. rights violators. And it's expected incredible. to pass their, their Senate. Critical race theory. You know, another name they put on, just tell the truth about American history. That's all we're talking about. Tell the truth and let the chips fall with their name. And that is Charles Barron, Assemblymember Charles Barron, um, Assemblymember, right, he's the sponsor of Assembly Bill A2619A, a bill that would have a commission, create a commission that would determine the amount of reparations due to black New Yorkers who were enslaved during the period of slavery in New York State, which uh, existed well into the 1840s, beginning in the early 1600s. Reparations for black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved and for other racial discrimination have been debated in the U.S. since slavery ended in 1865. Now they are being discussed by colleges and universities with ties to slavery and by local governments seeking to make cash payments to black residents. And finally, in solidarity with hashtag July Homeless Rights Month, local activists say they'll stage a sleep out until uh, all night in front of Gracie Mansion at 86th Street and East End Avenue in Carl Schurz Park beginning at 8 p.m. tonight. The activists are waiting to hear an answer from the mayor after he promised to look into immediate implementation of Intro 146 last Friday on the Brian Lehrer Show and report his answer this week. They intend on staying through the Ask the Mayor segment on Friday morning. Shams the Baron, a.k.a. the Homeless Hero, will stop by for a rally before the event, thanking the ac activists for their uh, allyship. Other activists will speak on their experiences combating housing injustice through community care. Zappi is an activist involved in the sleep out. Devasio's remarks on transitioning houseless people out of hotels and back into shelters. And uh, apparently he's already decided that he's going to start moving those people back into shelters starting on the 27th. 
What are you planning to do as far as his sleep out? As far as right now, we'll have people who will be taking up space and staying outside of, in an approximate location, like pretty close to Gracie Mansion. And just, you know, our demands are basically we would like housing and structures to be created to start creating permanent housing and not to send these people back into shelters. The NYPD received $200 million this year influx in their budget based off of lies and propaganda about an increased violent summer, and then it turned out that all those statistics were false. And we also don't believe that housing should only come to people's mind in the middle of a pandemic. Housing is a necessity, and it matters to hundreds of thousands of people in and millions of people in New York City. And it shouldn't just be because we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are worried about the spread of the virus and that reflecting how they deal with housing. Are you homeless yourself? I have experienced houselessness. I myself right now am not currently. You're saying houseless instead of homeless. What's the difference? It's a matter of changing your vocabulary. I mean, homelessness is the popular phrase of home is where the heart is. These are still people. Many people do also decide, choose to stay outside in the street rather than the shelter. You think people should have a right to live on the street? Is that what we're getting to something different here than hotels? But you're saying that people should. No, I don't think we want people to live on the street. I think the thing is that the reason why we find people that live on the street, including working class people, is because they can't afford or they cannot fit in the rigid structures of meeting shelter rules into their life. Many people who are working poor and who are working and houseless, maybe they have a job that goes until 12 o'clock at night. Well, shelters close at 9 p.m. So how is that person supposed to have somewhere to rest at? What are the plans for tonight exactly at uh, this area near Carl Schurz Park, near the White House, um, the mayor's White House, the Gracie Mansion? Right. So the plans tonight are to camp out in front of Gracie Mansion Ironically, because it is a mansion, I'm not sure exactly of the square footage, but think of that being turned into permanent housing. De Blasio has a home, so will the next mayor. They also have homes. The symbolic gesture of living in the mansion versus reallocating funds to the public in housing. So also we'll be setting up a tableau of sorts of a living room that is reflective of the American life of having a home and how a lot of people are currently in the streets or in shelters. It's really just anticipation of de Blasio being on the Brian Laird show, where he was going to talk about the current bill we were trying to have passed to prevent people being moved out of the hotels and back into shelters. And that's tomorrow, right? He's on Fridays, right? That'll be tomorrow. Right. That'll be tomorrow morning at 11, 11.30. Well, I hate to advertise another radio station's program, but I'll have to find a way to do it. Right. And that is Zappy, an activist involved in the sleep out. Intro 146 requires the city pay higher rates in his rental assistance voucher program for homeless New Yorkers and eliminates the program's current five-year cap for vouchers, expanding eligibility for the voucher program. Last night, almost 50,000 people slept in a Department of Homeless Service shelter, as happens every night. And 
and that's some of the news for Thursday, July 22nd, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Join me tonight, guest hosting Bob Fast Show, Radio Unnameable, my hero, at midnight till 3 a.m. And I'll see you tomorrow on the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.